You're listening to John Anderson Direct with Peter Hitchens. Please note that John Anderson Direct is recorded live via online streaming, which means that sometimes the audio quality is less than optimum. Well, Peter, it, it really is a genuine pleasure to see you again, have the opportunity to talk. I appreciate it hugely. The circumstances are extraordinary. You're in Oxford in England. Uh, I'm in uh, northwest New South Wales on farm, and yet we're able to communicate uh, by means of modern technology. And thankfully, the sound and visual quality look very good tonight. But I wanted to uh, talk with you, and thank you so much for your time, about COVID-19, coronavirus. We don't know as much about it as we need to know. We've made extraordinary decisions right across the world. What we do know now, though, is that it appears that it isn't as dangerous, which is not to diminish the importance of doing the right thing about it, as might have first been thought. Uh, On the other hand, what is now evident is that coming on the back of the mess that was never cleaned up after the great financial crisis of 10 or 12 years ago, this is going to reshape the global economy, our societies, the strategic architecture of the world will be very different indeed. So I'm keen to talk to you about the very interesting things that you've been saying on the disease, but Peter, you really have an extraordinary and valuable generalist's perspective, I think, if I can put it that way, of history, of different sorts of government and regime societies around the earth. We need to establish some principles, I think, in the West in particular, as to how we might re-establish our freedoms and some degree of economic autonomy and future. So thank you again for joining us. Now, uh, as I touched on, we don't know, it's surprising uh, to a, a layman who's not a scientist, uh, just how how little we seem to know even now about the epidemiology of C19, as it's known. You've been making the point that um, uh, we have three essential problems, a lack of knowledge of the necessary figures to know how dangerous the virus is, the fact that many may get it but show no symptoms, and we learn more about that every day, and the crucial distinction between, as you put it so succinctly, between dying with C-19 and dying of it. Can I ask that you just unpack the very interesting and I think important perspective that you've had on this debate? Yes, of course. And I should stress here that I make no claims to expertise in this matter. Uh, What I have done is I've started from the basic principle of almost all journalistic inquiry and indeed almost all inquiry in in the modern world, which is the, the great statement by Otto von Bismarck, never believe anything until it's been officially denied. Start from a position that you don't know uh, and that the authorities don't necessarily know either and ask questions. And what I have found is that a number of prominent and highly qualified people, and I will name them in most cases here, uh, have serious doubts about what we're doing. Uh, The first of them is Professor John Ioannidis of Stanford University in California, who believes that the supposed mortality rates from COVID-19, which have been suggested, are completely and utterly misunderstood uh, by those who are putting them forward and are based on statistical nonsense. His work is well worth consulting. Secondly, and this is by no means the only person in this position, a very prominent and distinguished professor of medical microbiology in the University of Mainz, uh, one of the main seats of learning in Germany, Professor Sutra Bhakti, uh, has made 
two major interventions in the politics of his country, saying that the shutdown of the economy is, is wrong and disastrous. Particularly, he argues that it's disastrous for the very large number of healthy old people in our societies who rely very much both on, on social contact and on exercise to sustain their health. And who, if this is prolonged, will will be severely and permanently damaged. And he foresees uh, quite a, a large number of deaths resulting from this. And so, if we're trying to put this as a, as some people try to suggest, as a, a crude question of life versus money, it isn't. Uh, the the loss of life from this policy is potentially considerable. And you see also in the experts from Sweden who are continuing to insist that their government behaves like a normal government and takes a moderate and proportionate action rather than precipitous and extreme action, uh, that they also doubt very considerably the extraordinary social, economic and political experiment being engaged on by so many major Western countries who are, who are in truth the outliers and the eccentrics in this, of shutting down their economies, of making attacks on personal liberty, uh, and, of, uh, and it seems to me of intensifying the economic crisis you mentioned earlier, which is almost entirely dropped off the front pages of the newspapers and off the major bulletins, despite being an enormous and grave uh, event in the economic history of the world, and like the, the, the tumbling of the stock markets, uh, the, the, the falls of certain currencies, the general declines in economic activities were bad to start with. But if you survey what's going on in my country, the absolute devastation, particularly of small businesses and the service industry, uh, we simply cannot afford their bills. Uh, the growing number of companies which have simply thrown themselves on the mercy of the government, which from somewhere or other, I know not where, is proposing uh, apparently to produce something like 30 or 40 billion pounds sterling uh, to pay people for doing nothing uh, for, 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 for several uh, few months. And I just look at it with astonishment. I've never seen anything like it in my life. I think, is, is, the, is the world now being run by teenagers? Does nobody know anything? Uh, and and, and it, it, there's no consideration. And when I raised these issues, because instinctively I felt when it began that, that, that some sort of questioning needed to take place, I thought the purpose of having a free society was that policies could be examined in public and debated. And it's always been my view that no government is, 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 does not benefit from having serious, informed opposition. All its policies will improve if they're opposed. And the response from, from other people in the media, from people on social media, uh, was, was vituperation, four-letter words, insults, uh, and shouts of rage. I should even dare to question this policy. And I find this astonishing, this atmosphere of, of total belief in, in what Big Brother tells us, and this collapse into the arms of Big Brother by supposedly free societies with long histories of public debate. It's, it's most dispiriting, and I, I, I fight against it, but I have to tell you there are moments when I think that, uh, that really we have reached something very like the end of civil society. Well, I think that's a, an interesting set of perspectives. Um, I take it, uh, to divert for a moment, you have seen and written very, very powerfully about the way in which um, the authoritarian regime that you experienced in Russia stripped the soul out of the place uh, yes. and left people uh, in a very bad state indeed. And as I understood it, you were saying, why would we voluntarily uh, take on the attributes of an authoritarian state where the party is always right in the West uh, when we've seen how ugly it is when it's forced upon you? 
Well, quite. And here is the astonishing thing. Uh, although the Soviet Union demanded uh, a, a public uh, concession that the government was always right and the party was always right and there was no alternative to the Communist Party's regime, everybody knew that from the intelligentsia downwards, right down to, 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 the, to the miners of Kamerovo in Siberia, nobody took any of this stuff seriously. People went to the Marxists and Leninists and classes and, 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 and trotted out and parroted the rubbish they were taught. They didn't believe it. What's absolutely astonishing in modern Western societies is that people actually believe the government propaganda, which they're fed, and get quite angry if anybody challenges it. And, and, and tell you, I, I'm watching at the moment, uh, the first chance I've had, uh, the, the, the extraordinary dramatization of the Chernobyl affair, which, uh, which is now available. And of course, one of the most striking things about it is the initial uh, desire uh, of, the, of the authorities to suppress news of the event. And they found they couldn't but they would have done if they could have done. And of course, also to prevent the expression of dissent. And, you see, you see, and, and that is why uh, the, the Chernobyl disaster happened, because there was no dissent, because there was no examination of government policy, because competence uh, was not valued highly enough, because authority was valued too highly, and because debate wasn't allowed. And I, you look on it with horror, and you, why would anybody wish to recreate one of the most disastrous societies that ever existed on the face of the planet. We seem to be tending in that way. There's also something remarkably Soviet, almost Frankensteinian, about the belief that by government action you can slow the spread of a virus. It, it's, it's, uh, it, it seems to me to be hubristic to imagine uh, that human action can fight such a natural phenomenon. And I, I'm not at all sure that we even understand the nature of what it is that we're fighting. I don't. I think that's true. I don't think we do. But now, um, to be entirely sympathetic, I'm not a legislator anymore, but I have been one, and I look at the dreadful pressure that legislators are under, the very real concern in the community, uh, elderly people particularly worried about their health, younger people about their jobs and their future, and then I think of the medical staff uh, and, and frontline people, my, my own daughter is one, trying to work out how to, if you like, manage the process in an age when there has not been much in, in enthusiasm for hearing a range of perspectives, I think their job's been an extraordinarily difficult one. Interestingly, here in Australia, it's emerged now that the, there's quite a lot of popular support for the way that the government here has tried to respond. But how do, uh, how do we, in a day and an age where we tear one another apart until something like this comes along, and then we demand simply that the government, which we've knocked in the way that we, we, we undermine and attack all of our institutions and the people who man them, if I can use that expression uh, uh, in the generic sense, um, how, when we have no confidence in them, does it then turn out that we place our trust in them to get us through something like this and demand that they essentially take wartime-like control of our lives and our economy. Well, this is a point which has been made by one of our um, most uh, experienced and intellectually accomplished lawyers, Jonathan Sumption, Lord Sumption, formerly on what we laughingly call our Supreme Court, uh, came out last week and said that one of the problems was that the public was demanding these measures uh, of, uh, of effectively repression. Uh, and the government was, was, was giving it to them. I think a lot of this has to do 
with the uh, the very serious effects of, of the egalitarian philosophy on Western societies, which have discouraged the maintenance of what you might call an intellectual elite of people who were confident of their uh, their knowledge and their their ability to reason, and were therefore able to challenge governments. And also, uh, the the other thing which happened is that politics is now largely denuded of such people, particularly at the at the level of of cabinet uh, appointments, which tend to take place people in these days in their sometimes in their thirties and forties, who simply have not been educated to think independently. Uh, or to examine things properly. So we're suffering in, in all the major Western countries from a, an absence of independent minds in, in positions of, of authority and influence. And it was notable when Jonathan Sumption spoke last week how, how very different he sounded in terms of literacy and, and, and articulacy and coherence from the politicians who he was criticizing. And it, 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 there is a, an absence in our societies of what I regard as intelligent leadership. It's, it really shows on occasions like this. As for the public, of course, the, the infantilization of, of electronic mass media and social media, the, the conformism which they promote, is uh, is increasingly terrifying, and is uh, seems to me again to be uh, to be a major problem which I've warned against before, and which on this on this occasion has shown itself to be a a, a very dangerous influence on society's direction. I have had some support in raising the issues that I have done. It's not so much support that I'm even seeking. It's the it's the willingness of the of the establishment to debate the issue at all. But in this matter, all the supposed, all the supposed safeguards and, and breaks on, on civil society have failed. Parliament failed. The official opposition failed. Uh, the the media almost entirely failed. Uh, civil society failed, and general civil civil courage among individuals has failed. It simply hasn't been discussed, and it, and, it, and the act of discussing it is uh, itself an act of not just of dissent belongs to rebellion and a society in which that is the case cannot seems to me to be well governed it seems to me that there are strong parallels with things that we've talked about before uh, i've had a deep concern that since the so-called great financial crisis of 0708 yeah. uh, we've displayed in the west a chronic reluctance to own our responsibilities you know, really, we created that mess in a whole range of ways, if you like, because of our sort of failing cultural mores, I think, as much as anything else. Having got ourselves into that mess, as I think Matthew Paris wrote a very interesting article uh, in The Australian out here. He's one of your writers, of course, in the UK. Um, face it. Let's face it. We're broke. We have to face up to this. But no one would. No one would do austerity. No one would take the tough measures to prepare us for this one well, did you see the, did you see the film The Big Short? No. Well, it's fascinating because it examines in in, in beautifully simple terms the, the simplicity that only those who fully understand the subject can do. Exactly how the the two thousand and eight crisis came about, and points out that all the elements which led to it were still in place, and it it was bound to happen again. And and here it is happening again, obviously in a slightly different form, and we're making it worse. 
Uh, Let's I, I, you just look and you think, is, is, is there nobody here who know, knows what's going on? Oddly enough, the, the, one of the Prime Minister's uh, senior advisors in Britain, the notorious Dominic Cummings, uh, famously said a few years ago, you think when you go into politics, it'll be like in the James Bond movies, where somewhere there's a room where all the intelligent people are. But I'm afraid the truth is there is no such room. Uh, you're, it, it's, it's, it's the Wizard of Oz. We imagine that these people know what they're doing. Uh, and, and sometimes it's better to do that because if you, it, 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 otherwise there's no bottom, is there? But, and, and you just have to live your life thinking somebody is in charge. Well, on this occasion, where it appears to me a severe mistake is being made, uh, one with consequences which will ring down the decades, for, for, certainly for far longer than I will be alive, and in, well into the lives of my children and grandchildren, uh, that you, we have to protest and say, if you don't know what you're doing, then stop and, uh, and listen to those who might have a different point of view. But there is no sign of that. Well, this, it comes back to the whole issue of how we debate and how we talk, and we'll, we'll tease that out in a moment. But let's look at the raw numbers here. Um, Australia was an exception. We're an outlier, and, and I, I hope I... I'm not being unduly smug when I say it was a great source of, it was a great privilege to be part of a government that actually left Australia with money in the bank just as the GFC started. There was no Commonwealth debt. There was money in the bank, almost unique. But most Western countries started off typically with 40, 45% debt to GDP as they took private sector debts onto their books, it exploded. And, you know, European countries typically got up to 80, 90, 100, even 120 percent of debt to GDP. Uh, America, similar. There was always going to be another shock. And those countries with those levels of indebtedness uh, that had done nothing about them. And my own country, we've seen uh, debt rising quite rapidly again. We now face a situation where in Great Britain, you're going to add another 15 to 20 percent of um, Debt to GDP. Uh, it, it's, it, we're, we're acting as if it was wartime, uh, which is possibly one of the reasons why the ceaseless use of wartime metaphor in Britain, which hasn't hasn't stopped since 1945, continues. But we're acting as if it was if, if it was wartime. What people forget, of course, is that the debts which we contracted during the Second World War, which you could reasonably argue were contracted out of absolute necessity for national survival, these continue to hang over us as an economy well into the 1960s. And people who grew up when I did in, in the austerity uh, Britain of the early 1950s uh, and, and late 1950s, remember us, gruffy, half-unrebuilt uh, half country, bad food and uh, poor public services, uh, dirty air and all the kinds of the other things that go with this. And, uh, and that, looking back on it, one now understands these were the consequences of the gigantic debts with which we were left at the end of the Second World War, which we eventually paid off only about a dozen years ago. And the we're now contracting debts of the same level. People don't seem to understand how long it takes to pay this off or what kind of what kind of burden is it, it's going to be. There is a genuine belief that the government just can, can create money at will. And I, I don't think history really supports that. Well, it doesn't. And that's, that'll be one of the great debates that comes out of this, I think, Peter, because there'll be a lot of people, particularly those who, if you like, might be uh, uh, supporters of things like the American New Green Deal and what have you. Let's all have a basic living wage, new monetary theory, all the rest of it. Uh, we can just print money. 
it's never ended well in history. It's already damaging our economy now. It's opened up the gap between those with assets, which keep increasing in value, those yes. who can't procure assets are younger. It's terribly unfair to those who who, who, who work for a living. They, they have, if you can't accumulate assets, which most people can't, then you're completely at the mercy of a currency uh, which might do anything, and your savings and your pensions are, are deeply unsafe. Seems to me, and indeed, the levels of wages I hear all the time at the moment in Britain of actual wage cuts, a thing which has not been a feature of life in this country since the 1930s. People are being approached by employers say, Look, sorry, we have to cut your wages, we can't afford to pay you what we pay you before. This has never happened in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. And, and again, small businesses I visit, there's a particular shop I, 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 I use in the, in the center of Oxford. They paid their rent yesterday to, 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 the, to the college which, from which they, they rent their premises. And they have no idea where the next month's rent is, is, is coming. They have stock, but they have almost no customers. Uh, almost all small businesses of that kind is either closed or, or is, is limping along with hardly any customers or income. Where do people think economies get their lifeblood from? They get it from all the things which the, the British government is actively preventing people from doing. And so I, 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 it's, I often get the impression I live in a mad country, as the Soviet Union was mad, uh, driven by all kinds of strange dogmas, but I seldom have it as strongly as I have it now. Now, to go to something that's very close to my heart, and you've just commented on it, so did Douglas Murray when I last spoke to him. Uh, th- this question of attracting people of deep knowledge, of a deep service orientation, and so forth. And I know you're very skeptical about these things, but I do want to tease them out a little, who who might be able to pull us together at a time like this, as we start to emerge, we are where we are. It's, it's, It's a very uncertain and concerning situation. But do you have any thoughts at all on on how we might find, as I look abroad in Australia, I, I do see some very good and capable and, and selfless people putting their poor up. But then, uh, you know, I think of uh, one of the best of them in this country who said to me at Christmas time, when I look at the way in which a couple of mistakes on, he was talking about our Prime Minister during the bushfire season, I look at it and I think, why would you bother? There's never any forgiveness. No one will forget. They tear you apart. Do you, I suppose I'm saying to you, I'm asking you, do you see any hope I know we've talked about this before, uh, and if you did, where do you see it that we can somehow find it within ourselves to throw up and support good well, leaders, assuming we can find them? I'm awfully sorry. I don't. I, I wish I could. And it, there's no pleasure in, in this admission. I, I look around and I don't see any reason to hope at all. I see a society which is um, in the course of tearing itself to pieces. And the things you mentioned, the the, the complete uh, unforgiving nature of um, politics when someone makes a mistake, the the misery, in fact, I, which is increasing it. I one, one one you can see why a lot of decent people won't go into public life because it's it it can tear you to pieces for for no purpose. And private life is destroyed, and all kinds of other things happen, which which must put off anybody thoughtful. Uh, combined, as I say, with the fact that we just don't seem to be our elite institutions no longer seem to be producing people who are 
prepared to do the thing which I think has sustained all civilized societies in, in, in history, producing people with the, the civil courage and the confidence in their, in their knowledge and training and wisdom to say, uh, actually, no prime minister, uh, the, the, no treasurer, this is not uh, necessarily the right policy. And we haven't got that. Uh, so I, I just feel um, abandoned. You know, I suspect that a lot of people do, Peter, and, and I'm making a You'll say, why don't you go into politics? But how? I, I, I'm not as familiar with the system of politics in, in Australia as I am with that in my own country. But in my own country, here is the system. The political parties choose uh, those candidates who will be selected to stand in parliamentary they choose them in, in quite small groups. A lot of um, elite influences exercised to make sure that certain people are chosen and similar uh, influences exercised to make sure certain other people aren't. And I know uh, that neither of the major political parties in this country would ever let me anywhere near a safe seat in Parliament. And if by any chance I managed to slip past the defensive submarine netting, and got in, I'd be on my own. And there's nothing more useless in the world than a lone member of parliament in a, in a, in a parliament dominated by whipped parties who can reduce an individual to total insignificance. You might be able to make one speech of four minutes in, in six months. Yeah, well, that's, that comes but back to the point. You can't, you can't get in there. You have to conform. You have to conform to a certain set of ideas even to get in there. So... Same is true increasingly of civil service and public service, where the, the, the dominant ideology of, uh, of equality and diversity is such that anybody who questions any of this is simply not recruited. It seems to me that um, if there's one thing that's horrendously unsuited to the, the, the difficult policy choices that we'll have to make collectively if we were to have any way of finding our, our way out of this mess, it's this thing that might be called identity politics, you know, where we club together with others with grievances and instead of saying what can we do for our community or our country, we say we're owed, we're grieved, we need our government to look after us. It's a disastrous model in the circumstance where actually if we'd have any hope. Yes, it's, it's disastrous. It's disastrous, but it's a reasonable response among the people who do it because they look at the way in which society is organized and they can see that if they want uh, to uh, get anything, then this is the way to get it. And it works. That's why it's, 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 uh, it's not a, I don't think identity politics is a, is a driver of this system. I think it's a consequence of this system. And it, that's that's really pretty much the only sort of politics anyone could engage into any effect. Yeah. So, in effect, a fractured society. We created it. I, I, I don't so much blame the people who engage in it. I blame the people who've created a system in which it, it, it is successful and effective to behave like that and unsuccessful and ineffective to behave in ways which might be more civilised. And as part of this, we've torn about down the standing of nearly every institution that undergirds Western freedom. So unless we can again establish some degree of regard and respect for those institutions, and that will be a two-way process, we have to be willing to respect them when they do well, uh, but then they have to be worthy of that respect. If we can't break that cycle of distrust 
then it's going to be extraordinarily difficult because the, the reality is one of the things that's happened now is that nations are back. Nationalism's back. Even in Italy, uh, it wasn't to the World Health Organization that the Italians turned. It wasn't to Brussels, despite the common currency and the insistence that there be no borders. They turned to their own government. And that's been replicated everywhere. Well, and their own government probably imprisoned them in their homes. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure is, is what anybody much wanted. I mean, Italians now, as a, as a heartbreaking report on the BBC the other night, of Italians who are down to their last, this last small change in their pockets, uh, who's totally, it's a country in which it's an awful lot of small private business, and people just haven't got any money left after weeks and weeks of being confined to their homes, unable to work, unable to trade. They're just going broke. And, and, and what is the effects of this anyway? I mean, to get back to the COVID crisis, we have not at any point that I can see established uh, any connection, either uh, by correlation or by, let alone by causation, between these shutdowns of countries which are being engaged in in so many, in so many places and between uh, any reduction in the number of deaths from the disease. Uh, I see no reason looking at one looks at uh, the, the countries which have had outbreaks of the COVID-19 virus, from China to South Korea to Hong Kong, Singapore to Japan to the United States to Latin America to the European countries. You cannot see in any of them uh, a pattern uh, which, which, which in any way connects any action by government and, and any following result. People praise, for instance, both Hong Kong and Singapore for having acted promptly and effectively in, in both in both places, the, the, the incidence of coronavirus uh, went down after the actions that were taken. But the interesting thing is that if you look at the actions of Hong Kong and Singapore, they're different, and yet they had a similar result. So we have nothing to go on to say that this, that this will even work on its own terms. And it just goes unquestioned. I get this all the time. There's a fascinating article which I'm tweeting pieces from in, in the National Review on April the 6th about Sweden, pointing out that it's, it's, the, it's the other countries which are engaging in the rash experiment, uh, while Sweden is actually behaving as a normal country would be expected to do in a proportionate and, uh, and, and cautious manner. Well, I think it's said of the Swedes, isn't it, that they have a very strong understanding that what they call a good society can only continue while you have a strong economy. That well, it's I mean, I don't know what it is. I think I mean, there's a lot of there's a, there's a lot of reason behind it. I, I find it, it's it's slightly odd for me as a as a as a social and moral conservative to find myself standing up for the for what is basically a, a social democratic and politically liberal and, and secular country. But nonetheless, in this case, uh, Sweden's educated elite seems to me to be behaving in a more rational, tolerant, and uh, and wise fashion. Other than that of my own country, and I have to say so. Now, to come back to the point that I was um, uh, alluding to a moment ago, you're seeing again, I think, the rise of, of nationalism. That can be, if it's well done, and there's a degree of solidarity around principles globally, nothing to be feared. In fact, in many ways, it can be welcomed. On the other hand, it could be very ugly. So in part, I'm thinking that America's capacity to lead on these sorts of issues has been anything but evident in this crisis, sadly. Well, it's true. I'm not sure about this resurgence of nationalism thing. I'm not sure whether once the once the COVID-19 crisis has subsided, whether there really will be a real 
uh, recrudescence of, of national sovereignty, for instance, uh, maybe of national sentiment, but the two things are different. Uh, I think some people, and one looks with considerable distaste at what's going on in, in Viktor Orban's Hungary, have used the uh, have used the event as an occasion to make further attacks on liberty and, in my view, the rule of law in their countries. And that's uh, some people might also confuse that with with um, nationalism. I, I I tend towards patriotism rather than nationalism myself. Anyway, I think that the 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 huge power of international organizations and of international regulation uh, and of international trade will continue after this is over and i'm not entirely convinced that the really that, that this this is going to change the united states is under very poor leadership and has been for some time and, and, and there isn't doesn't seem to be any argument about that uh, whether under a different president things would be any better i'm not sure uh, but that's just a fact, and the United States is not, and, and never will be again, as strong as it was before the great folly of the Iraq War, which I think was the real moment at which its, its international interests began to decline in a really serious fashion. Uh, but this is just a fact of life, which those of us who who grew up with the United States as the great star and constellation of, of, of international power have, have got to get used to. The United States is not what it was economically, or politically, or indeed in any other way. And, and as a result, other, uh, other darker stars begin to, um, to uh, dominate the heavens. And we, we see a world in which China may become increasingly dominant, which I don't think any of us can really look forward to with much keen anticipation. No. Well, they, uh, I suppose one of the aspects of this is that as we contemplate moving ahead when this is over, one of the things that many nations will be asking hard questions of their government about is how come we were dependent upon 80 or 90 percent, uh, in uh, Australia's case and America's respectively, for our pharmaceuticals uh, on China, for our pharmaceuticals. They'll say, we have to set these things up here. We've got to be able to produce face masks. We have to be able to produce respirators, uh, oxygen machines, and what have you. Um, I think it will personally, and I'm just running this by you, set some limits on globalisation. I've always been in very much in favour of opening up trade. I've always believed that it builds understanding. We'd always hope that, uh, if you like, uh, as China advances down a more liberal path, it might uh, see uh, advances in um, its politics towards a more democratic state. That hasn't happened. No, <laughs> for globalisation, uh, I think it's a very interesting question, and it will require a lot of deafness. I think deftness, not deafness. Uh, <laughs> yeah. that's just between the two. <laughs> but yes, well, maybe I think that um, I think the real problem I, is uh, is as it always is. People will will take the trade policies which suit them at the time. When Britain was top nation and, and industrially immensely powerful, it was terribly in favour of free trade. As things got less successful, then less so. Uh, Australia, I think, has never been a major manufacturing economy, and is therefore uh, has to have a different attitude to trade from one which which has been. Uh, but I don't, I can't see how the. Uh, the the levels of global trade which have been established in the past as what you might call the Deng Xiaoping era uh, can now uh, be gone back upon uh, very easily. I don't see any sign of any great economic nationalism. 
Um, and I said, political national sovereignty is increasingly extremely difficult to exercise. And often those countries which do exercise it are uh, have sanctions and other things visited on them. I, one, one country which I would love, I think, if it were allowed to be, to be part of the um, the international system, but because it isn't, uh, the, the moment pursues a sovereignist position is Russia. Uh, and both Russia and Iran are countries which are uh, which are constantly visited with sanctions, isolation, and in, in, and and pressure of a of a diplomatic and and uh, a near military uh, type to um, b- because they stand outside the the globalist system, and I don't see any sign of that ending either. And of course, the, once once this all this has subsided and the economic crisis is over. Will we again find ourselves uh, with the terrifying tensions in the Middle East uh, between Iran and Saudi Arabia, which still seem to me to be in grave danger of exploding into at very, very least a severe regional war, and perhaps one much wider than that because of the, 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 the way in which both Iran and Saudi Arabia have strong allies in, uh, elsewhere in the world? So I, I, I remain very frightened by that prospect. So it will require extraordinary leadership. But to come back to, uh, if you like, guiding principles, one of the things that's been said a lot in Australia at the moment is that, you know, red and blue are now irrelevant. Uh, We have to get through this together. And I understand that that's important. But, you know, we have nominally, uh, you have a nominally conservative government. America does, I suppose you could say as well, uh, Australia uh, does. um, And yet they are now overseeing these command economies, uh, massive, massive government intervention in our lives, winding that back seems to me not only to be very important, it's going to be very difficult, but it needs to be subject to some principles. It seems to me that the the great strands of Western thinking have largely hollowed out and that's left us with um, ad hocery and with a great deal of managerialism that isn't going to be enough. We'll have to have people who can articulate a vision of what sort of countries uh, people we want to live in and how the global order might work. Any thoughts on the sorts of principles that should undergird thinking as we go forward? It seems to me that principles matter is what I'm saying. We, don't, we can't just think we're going to manage our way out of this. We've got to know what it is we want to get to. The one thing that I concluded after living abroad for several years and then traveling to what I I last counted up as 57 countries, some of which no longer exist, was that the absolute basis of civilization is the rule of law combined with liberty. These are actually the principles of government which I fundamentally subscribe to, law and liberty, and the rest of it is superstructure, in my view. And the problem with both of these things is that they don't exist, they don't grow naturally. They grow only under certain types of cultivation, under particularly good conditions. And I think these conditions are rapidly ceasing to exist. And one of the, one of the, the, the things which allowed the particular form of law and liberty which your country and mine have until recently enjoyed uh, was the the long period of island government uh, in in the in the in the British Isles, particularly in England, which allowed for a, a development of institutions and of of habits and of uh, of a respect for law, 
which if you look at areas of the world such as the Balkans, which are in many ways culturally and uh, and in many other important ways, areas of great human development, they've never been able to develop these marvelous institutions and habits which we have because of the constant interruption of war and invasion which they suffer. And now we have a different form of, of invasion in the, in the form of, of globalist economic pressure, uh, which makes it harder and harder for us to assert these basic principles. And I, I fear for it. I, and I, I think that whenever I examine any policy in its outcome, I start from the point, well, how will this affect uh, the fundamental principles of the rule of law and of human liberty, which seems to me to be the basis of civilized society? And almost invariably, the answer is badly. And I think this is another example of it. I, and part of the reason for that is, of course, that liberty only really exists if it exists in the hearts of free people. If they themselves aren't willing to defend it when it's attacked, then it can't long survive. And if you have a people which actually believes that it's it's uh, it, 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 it become so frightened that I think this this um, alleged pandemic, and I say alleged because I think that we may possibly have overestimated this force, uh, the, has, has created an atmosphere of fear in which people repose all their hopes in the state and in power. And of course, when you do that, power no longer really needs to worry about law, does it? No longer really needs to worry about the consent of the people because power becomes a, a, a straightforward, crude, Hobbesian bargain. We protect you from the terror without, and you give all your freedom to us. And I, this is what this is what's really frightening me. Under, I mean, I, I'm scared of the economic consequences of this. Uh, I'm scared of the social consequences of it, but really, really beyond that, I think the education that I've had in the past few weeks of trying to stand for free debate and discussion has given me a really, really quite worrying lesson in how much less freedom I and anybody else have than they had, say, 10 years ago in this country and in any Western country governed by the rule of law. I have it. Uh, I have it partly because I've exercised it and other great um, uh, great elements of providence, which I won't go into here, which have allowed me to exercise it. But the truth is that it's much more circumscribed than I've ever known it in my life. That's a very profound thing to say. One of the American founding fathers, I can't remember which one, commented that anyone who allowed fear uh, to, uh, if you like, um, compromise their freedoms was worthy of neither. I think it's Benjamin Franklin on that occasion, the man who sacrificed freedom for temporary security, deserved neither. Yeah. I think Benjamin Franklin died. So one, the, the sort of Western ideal of freedom seems to have given way to the idea of rights, that, um, uh, you know, discrimination law, machinery everywhere, sets up a system of competing rights. So instead of celebrating freedom, practicing freedom, wanting to advance it to those who might not be fully enjoying it, that was what Martin Luther King, I suppose, was trying to do, saying there are some people here who are not fully enjoying the freedoms that they ought to be entitled to as Americans. Well, I try not to use the term rights. Uh, rights seem to me to be granted by government. Yeah. Uh, and, the, the, what, what, and the, therefore the whole... The whole 
theory of rights seems to me to be based on the idea that we do not have any of these things unless government grants them. Whereas the English principle, as I understood it, was always that man was free unless he was circumscribed by, by laws which had themselves been made by a free parliament. Uh, and that the the idea that government granted certain rights, that at the moment, the government grants me under certain conditions the limited freedom to leave my home. I am allowed to do so, but only if I have reasonable excuse to leave my home. And this is where I am in, in, in England, where uh, where I think the, the, the jurists of the, of the 17th and 18th centuries would grind their teeth if they saw this going on. But that is my current legal position. Fortunately, where I live, it's not uh, too officiously enforced, but there are other places where, it's, uh, where it is and where uh, police forces actively encourage people to inform on their neighbours if they go out too much. I, I, this, this has actually happened. I imagine it, but it is so. And I, I'm freedom cannot be expressed or rationed in, in rights. In my view, freedom exists, and you grant government certain uh, powers to limit it by law. Uh, you hope, of course, in a, in a, in a proper, properly constituted society that, that most human behaviour should be governed, first of all, by conscience, so the law should only intervene as a last resort. And so a whole, a whole uh, lexicon of rights seems to me, and its acceptance by so many people seems to me to be a mistake. Uh, it's, it's, un, it's unfortunate that the, the great documents of, of, of modern Western freedom, the Bill of Rights of the United States and the, the 100 years earlier of, of, of England are called Bills of Rights rather than Bills of Freedoms because they, that's what they actually are. Uh, what you, you know, you no doubt, I'm sure the Bill of Rights is part of Australian law as is part of English law. It, it, what it actually says is this is what the government cannot do. No, we don't have a Bill of Rights. This is what the people can't do. This is, this is what the government cannot do. And those are the only, those are the only things worth having. It's, now, it's we have a dusty constitution that serves very well, but no Bill of Rights. It's been contentious. There are those who want them, but we don't have one. So we really do adhere to the uh, the, the, the model, at least in theory, uh, that uh, unless it's prescribed, you are free to do it. But what has happened in this country is that we've now had over 50 years of more and more and more anti-discrimination uh, legislation set up supposedly to secure people's rights, but then they end up being clashing rights. And that machinery has done nothing to stop and indeed may even have aided and abetted a process of unquestioned winding down of social capital, of increased loneliness, of tribalisation, uh, of anxiety, depression, self-harm. It's not been a happy story. We'd be yeah. better off pursuing freedom, I would have thought. But no, and yet it was done in many cases. Yet it was done in many cases with the best of intentions, and, and uh, people who did it didn't set out to achieve the same. And that, that's, that's been one of the difficulties in arguing against it. And I think some of the initial, for instance, the, 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 the early Race Relations Acts in, in, in Britain, I find it impossible, although uh, there seems to me to be a sort of breach of principle involved in them, I find it impossible to oppose them because of the horrible things which were being done before they existed, which they prevented. The difficulty is, can you limit uh, that sort of legislation, uh, or, or or does it go too far? And that ultimately is is a problem for for the individual humans involved in governing the country. I think we have, in many cases, gone too far in these ways. But I I do like very much to start on the assumption that my opponents have good intentions. 
And I ask the same in return. And the interesting thing is, I don't get it. I'm assumed to be acting out of some sort of malice or mischief rather than uh, rather than out of good intentions. And that's another part of the, the gradual darkening of, of, of freedom in my country at the moment. Well, that's uh, as Jonathan Haidt uh, observes, again, to make your point about a discrimination law, often with the best intentions, we've actually raised our children to believe that life is a battle between good people and bad people, uh, which tends to play into the hands of identity politics, which tends to undermine the idea that you've got to find your way forward collectively. So uh, the rule of law is, is something that unifies because it respects all. The king must respect the peasant just as the peasant has to respect the king. Um, it's, it's such a crucial principle. The idea, that, the idea that power has something overarching which controls it is so cr crucial to civilization that there are limits on power. Yeah. Uh, and, and when you see it happen, when you see a court strike down a tyrannical act by a government and the government obeys the court, it is so moving But it happens. Because in many, many countries, no such thing would even be tolerated. Yeah. Well, Peter, these are very, very uncertain times. Uh, it's hard to... Uh, see a, a lot of light at the end of the tunnel and yet hope springs eternal. Uh, and uh, uh, I have to say that, uh, you know, I, I love Australia dearly. I want to see uh, its best days uh, somehow still being in the front of us, but it's not going to happen if we can't cluster around key ideas and as, as, uh, principles, of you, as you've just put it. Uh, and uh, I do thank you very much for your time. Uh, I'm always intrigued by people when we've had one of these conversations who come up to me in the street and say, uh, uh, Peter confronted me with reality and I found that very valuable. You've done it again tonight, Peter, and I thank you very much. Well, it's kind of you. Could I conclude with uh, some remarks which Oliver Cromwell made to some particularly um, obstreperous bunch of uh, hardline dogmatic Puritans and gentlemen? And this is, I address this to my opponents in the argument about how we treat the coronavirus. Gentlemen, I beseech ye in the bowels of Christ, think it possible ye, ye may be mistaken. Ah, well, that's a question of pride. Which Rosa Cromwell is quite mild language, I have to tell you. <laughs> well, that's a question of pride, isn't it? We need to be humble enough to admit that the other person's argument should be heard if we're to ever find the best way forward and have people own that way forward. Sure. You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net dot a you